Uh, well, today we are uh, ending our series on Ruth, and uh, it's been a great journey uh, through this, this small book. And uh, from what I hear, there is a buzz all around this city and all around this state of people studying Ruth. It was pretty clear that in this season of this year, at least in this area of the country, God wanted the story of Ruth to be brought forward and uh, to to have it encourage his people. And uh, I believe that we've been encouraged in tremendous ways as we walked through this three-week series. Uh, So today we're going to end it, and uh, I believe that we're going to end it in a powerful way. Uh, recognizing uh, the, the spirit of the gospel and the, and the meaningful death of Jesus on the cross. Now, um, if you're visiting here today and you're here for Bebby Dedications, I especially want to welcome you, and uh, it is so good to have you here. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about our church. Um, we exist to present Christ as Savior, pursue Christ as King, and partner with Christ in service. And the way that we've structured our ministry is to help us fulfill each one of those statements. Uh, which means that when you come on Sunday morning, uh, we want to present Christ as Savior. Uh, that we don't want to just offer you some sort of higher morality. We don't want to just offer you uh, some sort of generic spirituality. Uh, we are here to celebrate Christ. We're here to celebrate his death on the cross. We're here to celebrate his resurrection. Uh, even when it's not Easter, you can do that. That's allowed. And that's what we're here to do every single Sunday. Uh, So we're not here to just improve your moral character, although that's part of it, and that's an overflow of relationship with Christ, but we're here so that you might come to know this person of Jesus. And uh, maybe you've been following him and you know him for many, many years. We're here so that you can come to know him on a deeper level. Maybe you've not ever come to a point in your life where you've made a decision for Christ. We're here every single Sunday so that you might come to know him for the very first time. Uh, That's what we're all about. And the beauty of Scripture, I believe, is that regardless of where you turn, regardless of what page of Scripture you're on, you can see shadows of Jesus. You can see Jesus uh, being presented. You can see uh, him being prefigured. You can see him uh, being, uh, there's a shadow of Jesus. Every story whispers his name. And so as we follow this, this last story and this last portion of the Ruth narrative, what I want to do today is to present you the hope of the gospel, that you might fall more deeply in love with Jesus, that you might fall in love with, in love with him for the very first time. But that's why we've gathered here today. And uh, some of you are already nervous about what all is going to go, what would take place. Uh, but I encourage you, uh, I'm here to, to lift you up, uh, to encourage you, and to give you a good word here today. So uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Ruth. Uh, Ruth, I'm going to look at chapter a little bit in chapter 3 and a little bit in chapter 4. And uh, Ruth is in the Old Testament. It's just after the book of Judges, and it's right before 1 Samuel. It's a very small book, just a few pages. And uh, if you, there's no shame in looking in the table of contents. Okay? And if your neighbor looks at you funny, they're just trying to cheat and find it themselves. So they're not looking at you funny. They're just trying to look at you and, and find the answer. And if uh, you're just uncomfortable with all of that, or you prefer, we have our digital Bible with us today, lucky for you, and so it will be displayed up on the screen. But uh, Ruth chapter uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4 is what we'll be looking at. We'll be there in a few moments. But I feel like I need to to catch you up on the story, catch you up on what has happened so far in this beautiful narrative of the book of Ruth. So I'm going to try to go through this very quickly to give you a review of this story and all that has happened uh, up to this point. Okay, you guys ready? Come on now. Don't leave me hanging. Are you ready? Ready to hear God's word? All right. All right. 
Let's retell the story of Ruth. Elimelech moves his family from Bethlehem to Moab. If you want to remember how to say Elimelech, just think of the Muppets song. Do Elimelech. Do, 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 do. Elimelech. Do, 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 do. Okay, so that's just some gospel truth for you. I'm just trying to help you out. That's how you say Elimelech, okay? So Elimelech moves his family from Bethlehem to Moab because of a family. He has two sons and a wife, Naomi. Now, Moab, you have to understand, is the land of the enemy. It is a cursed nation because they have served false gods. Uh, many, uh, many prophets in the Old Testament are recorded as, as speaking against the nation of Moab at some point or other in their prophecy. And yet Elimelech, uh, from the family of God, from the land of God, moves his family into the enemy's camp. Okay? And what we talked about in the very first week is that being in God's will, being in God's land in the midst of famine is still far better than moving into the camp of the enemy in the midst of a feast. That a famine in God's will is still far better than the, the perceived feast in the land of the enemy. So if you're here today and you're going through a bit of a famine, you're going through a rough time, but you feel like you're still in the middle of God's will because God never promised that his will would be easy or he never promise that it would all be white roses for you while you're inside of his will. And some of you are thinking about moving to the enemy's camp because you think it's better over there. They have more fun over there. The grass is greener over there. Let me encourage you and tell you today that stay where you're put because God's will in the midst of famine is still far better than the feast that's going on in the enemy's camp. Can I hear an amen? That was week one. Now, moving on in the story then, the two sons of Elimelech, uh, Mary two Moabite women. They marry women from the enemy's camp. And what we hear is they live life together for about 10 years before Elimelech and the two sons end up dying in the story. So what we have left is just a few verses into the narrative. The only people that are left in this family that has relocated from Bethlehem to Moab are the three girls, Naomi, the mom, and two daughters-in-law, Orpah, that was before her famous show, and then before she quit her show. Come on now. <laughs> and then Ruth. You didn't know that Orpah was that old, huh? Oprah, come on, people, come on. Okay, so that's the deal. Two, three women left, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. Now, Naomi decides that she's going to go back to her homeland in Bethlehem. And she says to these two daughter-in-laws, Go back, or in other words, stay here in Moab, stay in your land with your people, and this is important, with your gods. Because I'm going to go, I'm going to return to my people, I'm going to return to my land, I'm going to return to my God. Okay? And now, what, what ultimately happens is that Orpah says, I get it, I'm good, I'm going to stay here. Uh, Ruth, though, makes a commitment to Naomi. Ruth, her name meaning friendship. Ruth clings to Naomi, makes a a, a commitment to her, and it says to her in chapter 1, your people, my people, your God, my God. And she makes a commitment to stay with her mother-in-law and follow her into her homeland. Now, sometimes we have a tendency to make this prescriptive, and to all you daughters-in-laws, you have to cling yourself to your mother-in-law. And some of you say, oh, no. 
right? So this is not a prescriptive uh, thing that we should do. Uh, It's a great picture of friendship, and it's good to be a great friend, but it is not a word to all daughter-in-laws that you have to make this kind of radical commitment to your mother-in-law. That's a misunderstanding of the text. This is descriptive of what Ruth did and her commitment. And so Ruth and Naomi then arrive in Bethlehem, and they are baroque with a capital B. I mean, they are, they're so poor, they're poe. You guys got to help me out today. You got to help me out, okay? So they arrive in Bethlehem, they're broke, and Ruth goes gleaning uh, among the fields, which essentially means that she's picking up after the leftovers of the harvest. And, and in other words, she's eating table scraps. She's following the, the harvesters, picking up whatever is left, whatever is dropped. She's gleaning. She finds herself dependent upon the overflow of, of other people's possessions, their abundance. She depends on other people's abundance for her very sustenance. She's gathering table scraps. She's seeking to get all that she can get. She's gleaning from the field. Now, to truly understand this story, we have to understand the desperate situation that Ruth and Naomi find themselves once they arrive back in Bethlehem. They've come from the enemy's camp. Ruth is a Moabite woman. She's considered a foreigner. In fact, in chapter 1, she isn't even named. This is in chapter 2. She's not even named. It's, oh, that foreign woman over there from a foreign land. She's not even named. And so they find themselves desperate, destitute, completely uh, find, find themselves at the hands of other people's abundance and what they will offer to them. Now, that's a difficult place to be. And many of you have never been there in your lives. God's provision has been very real in your life. He's watched over you. But try to place yourself in the framework of this story that Ruth and Naomi are in desperate need. They are poor, they are broke, and they are broken. That's the picture of the story. We have to understand that. Now, the field that, that Ruth goes in order to glean is, ends, up to be, ends up being the, name, the field of this guy named Boaz. He is kind, and he tells Ruth that she can, he can, or she can glean in his field until she has had all that she needs. And then Ruth goes to Naomi. And I'm taking a little bit of a interpretive uh, liberty here, but Ruth goes to Naomi and says, you got to believe who I met today. He is a man of standing. He is fine. He let me glean in his field. Girl, you cannot believe it. Okay? That's a little bit of, you know, that's a, that's just, I'm just taking a little bit of liberty. Okay? And so she goes, and, and you, got, you won't believe him until you see him. And then Naomi says, come here, girl. Boaz is a relative. <laughs> and so you got to understand what this means. And she's like, girl, you got to stay there. You got to go back to his field every day. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself hurt. Okay, how am I doing with the attitude? Am I doing all right? (laughs) Okay, so again, you know, just taking some liberty. So this is what, so this is essentially the story of Ruth, okay? So, you know, oh, no way, you ended up in Boaz Field? Oh, okay. Remember, these have a a close relationship. And so as I was preparing for this message, I I prayed about what the, the, uh, the best friend relationship between girls would look like, and that's what the Holy Spirit gave me, okay? So... Don't blame me. I'm just the messenger. <laughs> All right. That's the story. You guys caught up? You feel good? Could you retell it to a friend? 
That's not, a t- that's not a test, but I hope you would. I hope you'd be able to, okay? That's where we're at in the story so far. Now, I want to read several verses in Ruth, okay? Uh, we're going to start in Ruth chapter 3, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses there. Then we're going to skip down to, to Ruth chapter 4 and read the first 10 verses, okay? Uh, so follow along with me. Uh, Ruth chapter 3, the first 12 verses. Now, one day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, uh, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours, girlfriend. Okay, so tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. So wash and perfume perfume yourself and put on your best clothes and then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that where you are until he has finished eating and drinking. And then when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lay down. And he will tell you what to do. Now, already in our culture, we're going, what, what, right? I mean, we don't get this, okay? But we'll, we'll get there today, okay? I'm going to explain some of this historical stuff for you. Now, starting with verse 5, I will do whatever you say, whatever he, you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had told her to do. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and he was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Now Ruth approached him quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He churned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Wow, who are you, he asked. Probably what you would say, okay? Who are you? Probably with some other words in there, okay? I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a family garden gar- guardian. Now, get your head out of the gutter. This is not what you think it is, okay? This is not what you think it is. Now, the Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, this kindness is great, uh, greater than that which you have showed earlier. Uh, you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. Uh, I will do for you all that you ask. And all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And although, see, it's a, quite a shift that we've had from Ruth being just a foreigner, now considered because of what she has done for Naomi and her commitment to her, now the word is getting around, and now she's considered a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am your family guardian, there is another who is more closely related than I. Now let's skip down to chapter 4 and pick up verses 1 through 10. Now, meanwhile, Boaz went to the town gate and sat there just as the family guardian he had mentioned came along. Now, this is the, the, the one who is mentioned is the one that was just mentioned here in the previous chapter. Uh, the one who is a closer guardian than Boaz, okay? So there's a closer kinsman to Ruth than Boaz, and they meet at the family gate. So that's, what, that's the scene that we're picking up on in chapter 4. Okay, so Boaz said to this man, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. And then he said to the family guardian, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of the people. And if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except for you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, this man says. And then Boaz says, On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth. This is the small print. Oh, by the way, you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the family guardian said, 
then I cannot redeem it. Because I might endanger my own estate, so you redeem it for yourself, for I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption of the tr- or the transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was a method of legalizing transaction in Israel. Some of you are like, sounds pretty good. I like those shoes. Let's make a deal. Okay? But it's all good. That's, that's not how it works today, but that's how it worked back then. So the family guardian said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And then he removed his sandal. Wow. I didn't hear any amens after we got done reading that because there's a lot of stuff in here that we're wondering what in the world is going on. Now, I feel like it's important, again, to remind yourself that Ruth and Naomi find themselves in a hopeless situation. They are destitute. They are broke. They are poor. They are separated from their people. But here's the important part. In the midst of their so-called hopelessness, there were glimmers of hope. All the time, there were glimmers of hope. Now, I don't know where you're at in your life today. I don't know if things are going really well for you. I don't know if things are really, really challenging right now for you. But I believe, because of the sovereignty of God and the authority of his word, that regardless of what you're going through, there are glimmers of hope, there's evidence of God working, and there's evidence that he is putting pieces back together that are broken. Can I encourage you with that today? I don't know where you're at in your faith, and I don't know where you're at in your life, but there hope remains. Some of you have declared your situation to be hopeless, but let me tell you today that there is hope. Because listen to this, the the glimmer of hope that Ruth and Naomi discovered was that in the midst of of their destitution, in the midst of, of being broke beyond compare, in the midst of being cast out as ones who have returned from the enemy's camp, Ruth finds herself in the field of a close relative. And having in mind the law of the kinsman redeemer, which I'll explain to you in just a couple of minutes, having in mind the law of the kinsman redeemer, upon hearing that that Ruth was gleaning in Boaz's field, Naomi sees the possibility of redemption, the possibility of restoration, the possibility of hope. So what is this law of the kinsman redeemer? The kinsman redeemer is this law that said if a a, a member of a family finds herself widowed, the closest unmarried relative should take her as his own wife to keep the land and the name and everything within the same family. Essentially, taking this widow, a single woman in this culture, would be hopeless and in need of redemption. And so essentially the kinsman redeemer was the closest unmarried kin would take the widow, take her as his own wife, and in essence redeem her. Because being a single woman was a desperate situation in this culture. You were cast off as nobody, especially if you had been living in the land of the enemy. And so these two widowed women realized that there's a possibility of a kinsman redeemer. Are you with me? They find this glimmer of hope. Now today, I don't know, again, I don't know where you're at in your situation, and I don't even know where you're at in your faith. But when they realize that Boaz is a man of standing, who is a man of standing, a close relative, they see the chance of redemption. They see a way out of their difficulty. 
They see a way to end the separation from their people that they have experienced. And they see the possibility of brand new life. They see the possibility that all that they once possessed would be returned to them. Let me talk to you very openly and honestly today. That there may be times in your hopeless situation, for those of you who have not yet committed your life to Christ, you find yourself in a hopeless situation, and yet there appears this glimmer of hope, and you consider for a moment, I should give my life to Christ. And you consider for a moment those Christians that you've known that have walked through difficulty with great faithfulness and you picture them and you say, if only I could have their faith, if only I could have their strength. And you begin to picture in your mind if you could walk through this difficulty with the the kind of of, um, steadfastness that those people of faith have walked through and yet you don't know that the strength does not come from them but it comes from their God. But there's that glimmer of hope And you begin to say to yourself, I should give my life to Christ. I should do this Christian thing. I grew up with it. I'm aware of it. I had this hurt, but now now I don't know where else to go. I don't know where else to churn. So you come to church. Maybe you're here today as a last-ditch effort uh, that maybe something of, of some glimmer of hope would be brought to your life. And just as the glimmer of hope was becoming a shining star in the life of Ruth and Naomi... Boaz gives the critical news. There is a closer relative. And all of a sudden, there's a barrier to their hope. And I wonder today if you've experienced any barriers in those moments where you've decided, I'm going to give my life to Christ. I'm going to explore this Christianity thing. I'm going to come to church on a regular basis. I'm not ready to make any kind of decision, but I just want to explore this thing. I want to explore the glimmer of hope that I begin seeing because I've tried it all on my own. I've tried all my own excuses, all my own resources, all my own ideas, and I've, I've come to the end of the rope, and I just can't figure it out. I just can't get this figured out. Generally, my life is going okay, but this thing over here, I can't kick it. I can't get rid of it. I can't find hope here. I'm going to explore this Christianity thing. And then as soon as that comes in, the barrier does too. You know what I'm talking about? And you begin to experience those barriers. And your barrier, one of your barriers says, you know, Christianity is for the weak. And if you need Christ, that means you're weak. One One of your barriers just quite simply is the peer pressure of what my friends say. I mean, if I do this thing on Sunday, what am I supposed to do when I go into the office on Monday morning? Some of you, what would I tell my kids? What would I tell my kids? How, how do I begin? I mean, they're going to ask me questions that I don't even know the answers to. And so your life is, is very, this, this story, this narrative is very reflective of your life where you see this glimmer of hope, you decide that you're going to go into this direction, but then a barrier comes up. Listen, I'm going to boldly preach the gospel to you today. And today is the day for the barriers to go away. Today is the day that there'll be no more barriers. And I encourage you to knock them down and begin to really look deep and decide what does God want to do in my life? What does God want to do in my life? You hit these barriers, you you can't convince yourself that God is really good because of all that has gone on in your life. 
Well, this idea of kinsman redeemer, not just anybody can be a kinsman redeemer, right? There were three qualities that the kinsman redeemer had to meet in order to, to, to redeem this person. Uh, and again, this, this law of the kinsman redeemer, it's, it's right there in, in ancient Israel. It's a, it's a fairly common practice, uh, but there's three qualities. The first is the person had to be qualified. In other words, they had to be the closest relative, which is why Boaz says, I, I, I can't do what you're asking me to do. And we'll talk about the whole cloak thing at the end of the message. But he essentially says to her, I can't do what you're asking me to do because there's a person who is qualified and I'm not qualified. There's There's a closer kinsman to you. So the person has to be qualified. And in fact, this relative was qualified. This, uh, this person, the kinsman redeemer, has to be able. In other words, he has to have the resources. He has to have the means to buy the land, to take you on as a wife. He has to be able to take care of you. He's got to be a man of resource, a man of standing to be able to do it. He has to be able to redeem you. And this relative was, in fact, able to do it. And the third qualification is not only do you have to be qualified, not only do you have to be able, but you have to be willing. You have to be willing. And what we find in the story that we read is that this closer relative than Boaz is in fact qualified. He's the closest relative. He is in fact able. He says, in fact, I'm going to take the land. But when it comes to let's take this Moabite woman as well, all of a sudden he becomes unwilling. I will not redeem you. And so this closest relative finds himself qualified, able, but unwilling. And so Boaz steps in and says, I am the next in line, the next qualified. I am able and I am willing to redeem Ruth so that the pieces of her life might be put back together. So where she was once destitute and broke, she might be a person of wealth. Where she was once alone and considered a foreigner, she would be brought in. Where she once served gods who were false gods in the land of Moab, she might take on the true God, the God of Israel, as her God. True redemption. And this act of Boaz becomes for us a beautiful picture of the work of Jesus on our behalf. At the very beginning of this message, I said that every story whispers his name. Every story is a shadow of who he is. And in this act of Boaz being the kinsman redeemer and redeeming Ruth out of the pit of her life, we see what Jesus has done for you and I. For once all of us found ourselves destitute and in need of a savior. And isn't it beautiful how Jesus himself meets all three of these qualities, that Jesus is qualified. Isn't it interesting that in the New Testament, if you read the New Testament, you see Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. And, and sometimes that's a stumbling block of, I, I, thought that he was, I thought that he was the Son of God. He is. 
but it also is a way of, of, of Jesus describing that he has become flesh, that he has become our closest brother, that the God of the universe has put on flesh and bone for us, that he might be a, a, a kinsman to us, that he might be able to fully identify with us and with our temptation, that he might put himself within the limitations that we face in this body. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is also is qualified to redeem us because he is also the Son of Man. He became like us, 100% man, 100% God, in the same person, in the same body. I want to tell you the good news today, that Jesus is not sort of this, this invisible cosmic force and impersonal, but Jesus, the God of the universe, took on flesh, became like you and I, faced the same temptations that you and I face, so that he might identify with us, so that he might redeem us. And you can come up with all kinds of arguments. You can come up with all kinds of of things to, to work against that. But let me just simply tell you today that it takes a step of faith to realize these truths of God. That he loves you, that he is qualified. Now some of you don't think that Jesus is qualified. You think that he's just sort of this impersonal force in the sky and has just allowed everything to go haywire, but God took on flesh. He limited himself to flesh and bone in order to redeem us. John 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 14 in the Gospel of John says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The, The Greek language here, the original language, says that he tabernacled among us. He put on flesh. The word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who became the father full of grace and truth. And God is not only qualified, but he is able. That Jesus has every resource in the world to be able to take the pieces of your life and begin fitting them back together for his glory. That doesn't always mean that things will be easy. That doesn't always mean that things will go exactly how you would like them to go. But Jesus is in the business of redemption. He wants to redeem you. He wants to redeem this world. He wants to put the pieces back together for his glory. So he's not only qualified, but he is able to do the impossible. Jesus the sinless, perfect Son of God, able to make sacrifice for us in all the ways that you and I have fallen short. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, or some translation had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's qualified and he's able, church. He's able to redeem us. Now, some of you don't see God as able. You've been given a picture of Jesus that would disqualify him from being able to redeem you. I don't know where you got that picture of Jesus. Let me tell you today the good news of who Jesus is. Jesus is good and he's powerful. The Jesus and the God of the Bible is good and powerful. Now, if he were just good, but not powerful, he wouldn't have the resources to make a difference in your life. If he were just powerful, but not good, we couldn't trust him. But I want to let you know the good news today. 
that the Jesus that we serve and the God of the Bible is both good and powerful and therefore deserves our worship. And so I don't know what kind of picture you've been given of Jesus because there's a lot out there and not a lot of them have to do with the Jesus of the Bible. But may you realize today that he's good and he's powerful. And then here's the beautiful part. He's willing. Isn't that good news today? That Jesus is willing to redeem you? That Jesus is willing to take the pieces of your life and begin to put them back together? That Jesus was so willing that he, that he marched to a bloody cross and died for you, but death could not hold him. He was resurrected three days later. That we serve a God who is willing And some of you want to disqualify yourself from being redeemed because you believe that God isn't willing. Some of you want to say, what I've done in my past renders me disqualified for the redemption of God, that he will never love me because of what I did. There's no way that Jesus would take me. I'm so messy in my life. And so some of you think that you got to get all your stuff together. you got to get all your stuff straight before God is willing. But let me tell you the good news today. God is willing. And we take all of our dirty stuff, our messed up lives, we bring them to the foot of the cross, and Jesus helps to redeem it. But if you try to get all your stuff together first, it'll never work. How long have you been trying to get your own stuff together? And where has that placed you? With seasonal success, maybe. Tiny elements of success, maybe. But God is in the, in the business of redeeming you, freeing you from addiction, freeing you from hopelessness, freeing you from, from bitterness and anger so that you might more perfectly reflect the character of the one who loves you and who you love in return. God is qualified, he's able, and my favorite part, he's willing. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but experience life in the age to come. Church, today, may we realize that Jesus is the perfect kinsman redeemer. And he deserves our love. Now, some of you are like, come on, pastor, you cannot preach this message and not get to that weird part about the cloak and the lying at the feet stuff. I want to close with that. Because <laughs> that's just weird. Let's just be honest. What? There's a woman lying at my feet. Who are you? I'm Ruth. Would you spread your garment over me? This is bizarre. Okay? And it's, it's just good. Sometimes we feel like we have to pretend that we just read the Bible and everything's good. And, oh, of course. Of course she laid at his feet and asked him to spread the garment over him. <laughs> what else would you expect? You know? Let's, let's just all be honest today. That's weird. Okay? And there's some historical stuff going on that we need to understand in order to, to really get a hold of this. Now, the, the Hebrew word here is the word shawl or skirt or garment. I mean, you guys get the idea. This, this skirt, garment, shawl, 
Hem is another way of understanding it. Hem, H-E-M uh, in the English. Um, but on the hem of this garment was the emblem of the family. And uh, the emblem signified their authority. And so Ruth, lying at his feet and asking him to spread his garment over her was a way of her saying, may the authority of your family cover me. Or this is essentially a way of saying, would you marry me? Now, some of the dudes are like, we need to bring that back, okay? Because that takes all the pressure off of me and like all this, you know, this big shebang that I do, got to do for the, for the proposal. If we could just put, bring that back, life would be so much easier. So good luck with that, guys. Let me know how it goes, okay? But this, this essentially, is she saying, marry me, may the authority of your family cover me. Now, the other thing is that Boaz was a generation older than Ruth. And because of that, the kinsman redeemer issue, it was not Boaz's move. He was in the one that was in the position to redeem her, but ultimately Ruth had to make the move. Jesus is in a, redeem, in a, in a place to redeem you, but it's your move. Jesus' work has already been done. He's already died on the cross. He's already resurrected. He's already wanting, desiring to redeem you. And he'll chase you and he'll show you his evidence and he'll, be, he'll, be, he'll show you kindness just like Boaz showed kindness to Ruth in the field. But ultimately, it's your move. Ruth had to go to him and place herself at his feet and then say, may the, your authority Cover me. 